Today's scripture reading is taken from Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. So let's pray now as we come to this text. Lord, thank you so much for your word and thank you, Jesus, for your Sermon on the Mount, and we pray that it would go deep and do its work in encouraging us in holiness as we uh, plunge into its waters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in the section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is building up his preamble on love. And if you and I were to imagine love, we might picture ourselves in our favourite restaurant, having a romantic dinner uh, with our significant other. But Jesus doesn't go there when he's talking about love. Instead of talking about those who we'd naturally see ourselves with, he, he, he goes the opposite direction and he points us towards our enemy and how we treat our enemy. And this time together, we're going to divide into two sections, which are sort of natural sections that you'll see in your Bible, which is open in front of you. Uh, the first is verses 38 to 42, where we're going to call uh, this text a, a, a Jesus-shaped life, a Jesus-shaped life. And then we're going to look at verses 43 to 48, which is a Jesus-shaped love. And I've got to warn you that there's a lot of overlap here because it's just a single sermon that Jesus has preached to us, which we're spending our time in. Now, so in a, a Jesus-shaped life, uh, Jesus' teaching is famous in this area of the Bible. Everyone knows it. I mean, turn the other cheek and all of that. But you've got to admit that it's pretty difficult to obey. He sets the tone in verses 38 and 39 by quoting the Jewish law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And an eye for an eye can be found in three of the first five books of the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And so it is pretty difficult for anyone in Jesus' time to miss 
It was a law as well that is quite progressive in its time. It limited retribution to the harm that had been caused to you. So if someone plucked out one of your eyes, you couldn't go to him and pluck out both of his eyes. You could only take out one. Or if someone came to you at night and broke your leg, you couldn't make sure that both of his legs were broken, uh, or his arms as well. You could only break one leg. Retribution was limited to the damage that had been caused to you. And this was to avoid uh, ever-growing cycles of revenge. And so Jesus has been expounding the Jewish law in his Sermon on the Mount, and he starts his discourse on love with this well-known command. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Come on, Jesus, do not resist an evil person. It rolls off the tongue, but it's really difficult to obey. We've heard it so many times that it just goes over our heads. But Jesus, you're saying, do not resist the evil person. That just isn't something that happens naturally to me. You know, if someone insults me, I'm going to want to insult them back. That's just what happens naturally from my, from my gut reaction. You know, if, if someone insults me, I want to take them down a notch or two. I don't want them to get away with it. I clearly remember uh, when I was at school, one particular guy insulted me. And I took him by the shirt collar and I pushed him up against the wall. And I said, don't ever say that to me again. And I felt this self-righteous indignation, this, this anger which seemed to be justified in me. And actually, even just thinking about it now, I can feel the adrenaline coursing through my, my body again, the self-righteous pride. Um, and you might say, isn't that just what self-respecting people do? Surely Christians aren't called to be doormats. And surely God takes justice seriously doesn't he? He's a just judge. And if those are presuppositions which we have in coming to this text, then we are going to turn Jesus' teaching into a lesson on passive resistance. And that's sometimes how this is preached, in fact. And passive resistance will uh, undermine those who uh, are over us and abuse the power that they have. But Jesus isn't talking about passive resistance. In fact, he isn't talking about resistance at all. And he says it explicitly. He says, don't resist an evil person. And that's because his focus isn't on passive resistance. His focus is on love and how we should love those around us, especially those who have pitted themselves against us. And the reason why I think we sometimes miss this focus of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is that we divide the Sermon on the Mount into sections, and each of the sections we divide into sections, and then we turn everything in, into rules which we need to obey. But Jesus isn't doing that, in fact. And I think he would say to us that the Sermon on the Mount is a single entity uh, which focuses on how we should be living our lives in a kingdom-shaped way. Matthew, already in verse 23, has written that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what the teaching uh, that he sets out is on in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about God's rule and reign. It's how we are to live here on earth 
that reflects our king, that reflects Jesus. But if we divide the Sermon on the Mount into chunks, all we're left with are an increasing amount of rules, increasing number of rules, which we have to obey. And we might spell these rules out into uh, four different categories uh, in our particular text. Verse 39 gives us the first one. And it says, rule number one, if you're in a specific situation where someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek so that they can slap that one too. Or if someone sues you for your shirt, hand over your coat, your nice new barber jacket. Give that to them as well. That's rule number two. Or if you're in a situation where someone forces you to walk a mile with them, pop your backpack on your back and off you go, walk two miles. Or if someone asks to borrow money from you, here we go, you just hand it over to them and don't turn it away. Don't turn, turn away from them. And if, so if you're in those situations, then you've got to obey those rules. But if you aren't in a situation like that, then don't worry too much about it. And if Jesus' teaching is just simply one of rules, then it sets our minds buzzing. Automatically, we're thinking about how we've succeeded or failed in these rules that Jesus has given us. And we naturally try to work out how we can fulfill the minimum requirements of the rules without them affecting our lives detrimentally. And in fact, it's a bit like uh, the PM announcing some new COVID guidelines. And immediately you think, how does this impact my life? Can I still do what I want to do with these new rules that have been given to me by the government? That's what we feel when, if, uh, if we think Jesus is just giving us rules. But that's not Jesus' point. And the philosopher and theologian uh, Dallas Willard points out that if Jesus meant these verses to be four new rules for us to obey, then he would have given his listeners an exhaustive list. Rather than rules, Willard says, Jesus is giving us examples of someone who is living a kingdom-shaped life. Remember, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, living a kingdom-shaped life. And therefore, there might be times when you, in a similar situation, when someone slapped you on the cheek, and you actually decide that the most loving thing for the person who slapped you isn't to turn the other cheek, but is to get out the way. That could be the most loving thing for you to do for that other person who's just slapped you. These aren't rules. These are examples of the kind of life that is lived in a kingdom-shaped way that points to Jesus. It's about the heart, you see. It's not about the rules. So you won't hear the follower of Jesus, the kingdom-shaped person, saying, I always protect, number one. Or, I don't get angry, I just get even. Or, I don't suffer fools gladly. No, those who want to live like Jesus, choose to love an evil person in the way that Jesus loved them. You see, brothers and sisters, when we were still Jesus' enemies, he chose to be slapped on the face and scourged with whips. When you and I, brothers and sisters, were still Jesus' enemies, 
he chose to have his clothes taken off him so that they were divided up and that the soldiers cast lots for his garments. Brothers and sisters, when we were still Jesus' enemies, he chose to walk miles carrying his own execution device on his shoulders. And Jesus doesn't turn us away. Instead, Jesus is the active pursuer, the one who gives generously of himself, and the one who prayed on the cross, hanging there, half dead, that the Father would forgive the guys who put him up there physically. Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't done already. He calls us to live lives that point other people to what he has done for us and done for them. Richard Wormbrand, uh, an incredible inspiration, a man who was tortured for his Christian faith in communist Romania, wrote about he, how he and his fellow Christians uh, in prison used to love their captors and torturers and pray for them. And the result was phenomenal. The result was that they saw many of them coming to faith in Christ. And actually, some of them ended up in the prison with them, suffering for their newly found Christian faith. 2,000 years earlier, the Apostle Paul had seen something similar. He had seen his jailers coming to faith in Jesus. And he had seen the soldiers who guarded him in Rome uh, believing in Jesus as well. And of course, Jesus saw his own prayers for his executioners answered 2,000 years ago, as Matthew records in chapter 27, that the centurion and those guarding Jesus on the cross exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. That's Jesus' prayer being answered as his executioners declaring faith in him. And if we retaliate against our enemies, we miss the opportunity to point our adversary towards Jesus, the one who refused to hit back, but instead allowed himself to be killed so that we can be freed from the sin in us, that sin that demands that we live for number one, that we focus on self-promotion. And so we can use our cross-bought freedom to point other people towards Jesus. St. Augustine spoke about Jesus' work on the cross in these incredible terms. He says, For our sake he stood to you as both victor and victim, and victor because victim. For us, he stood to you as priest and sacrifice, and priest because sacrifice, making us your children instead of your servants by being born of you in order to serve us. In order for Jesus to be the victor, he had to be the victim on the cross. The two weren't mutually exclusive. Jesus was both victim and victor. And you and I, we aren't called to die on a cross for anyone's sins. Jesus has done that once and for all. But we should be aware 
that victims are able to be victorious in directing other people to the one who died as a victim in order to rise as a victor. So if we love others um, in a self-sacrificial way that uh, imitates Jesus, we find ourselves refraining from retaliation and rather we find ourselves praying for our attackers, showing care for the needs of the person who takes us to court, doing more work than our boss asks of us, lending to the one who has absolutely no claim on our money and doing many other actions like this. That's the heart of the one who is following Jesus and living a kingdom-shaped life. But you ask me, what about justice? Well, it is on the cross that love and justice met. Our sins deserved eternal punishment, but in his love, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin with his death. That's justice and love meeting together. Jesus' love fulfilled the requirements of God's justice. God is ultimately the judge. And therefore, there'll be times in life when we'll be willing to wait for him to mete out his justice in eternity. So now let's continue from a Jesus-shaped life to a Jesus-shaped love. And as I say, there's quite a bit of overlap because this is a single sermon that Jesus preached. The Old Testament prophet Joel wrote of a time after Pentecost where he says, Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And I absolutely love it how God's got a sense of humor, because even though I don't think of myself as an old man, every so often he gives me a dream, which seems to be him talking to me. And one particular dream that I had one night is of me reversing a car out of my garage, and I smash straight into a car that is behind me on the driveway, Uh, which is owned by my parents. And I got so upset because I thought, this car is parked illegally that I bumped into. It shouldn't have been there. If it wasn't there, I wouldn't have crashed. And so therefore, I deserve um, to get these people to pay the damages that have been uh, caused to my car. And I was just about to bust out there and uh, give these people a piece of my mind when my dad walked into the garage and held me back and stopped me in my steps and said, Guy, you can't do that. That's not what we do. He said, I'm going to go out there and I'll pay for their damage and I'll pay for the damage on our car. Because that's what our family does. We're a family who are generous and therefore we need to be generous to these people so that they would know our generosity. Our generosity speaks of who we are as a family. And do you know, brothers and sisters, that you have a heavenly father like that, with that sort of generosity? And as his son or daughter, he calls you to represent the family, since we reflect him to those who are around us. So Jesus in the section whips out another You have heard that it was said phrase in verse 43, 
And here he brings out an area where the Old Testament text had been distorted. Uh, he says, um, you, uh, sorry, they'd, so they'd changed the command, love your neighbor, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, Jesus' countrymen wanted to set a limit on their love. They wanted to set a boundary on those who had a claim on their kindness. But Jesus won't have any of it. He won't have a, a love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's simply a love your neighbor. And that, in fact, includes love for your enemy. Jesus won't have any of it. Love in Jesus' teaching, you see, isn't defined by how we treat our significant other on a romantic date at a restaurant. No, Jesus' love, his definition of love, is how we care for those who dislike us, those who disdain us, and those who persecute us. He says in verses 44 and 45, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The family likeness, you see, is seen in how we treat others who pit themselves against us. That, in fact, is the test of our love. And our God exercises common grace. As Matthew tells us, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So will you seek the good of your enemy, just like God does and did for you? I love how Matthew, the ex-tax collector, recalls Jesus saying, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Here's Matthew saying to us, come on, guys. That's what my old life used to be like before I met Jesus and I was radically transformed. I was a man who simply would love those who loved me. But that's not who I am anymore since I've met Jesus. That old self died when Jesus gave me new life in him and I started to resemble the family likeness of my Father God and Jesus, who is my brother, who is the image of the invisible God. Not too long ago, a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for quite a while knocked on my door, knock, 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 and the door was opened by a chap who looked a lot like me, uh, but he was 30 years my senior. And my friend took a step back. He's thinking, wow, guy has really aged a lot uh, since I last saw him. And then he suddenly put two and two together and realized that the person in front of him must be my dad um, because of the family likeness. And in a similar way, people around us and even our enemies should notice the family likeness and see things in us that resemble our God, our Father. The Christ follower will love those who don't love them and will pray for those who mistreat them and greet those who don't greet them. And when we're talking greeting, we aren't talking about that sort of a British high from across the street. No, we're talking about a Middle Eastern greeting. 
we're talking about a greeting with arms stretched wide, with a kiss on both cheeks, and a conversation that starts with how's your family and could last for a long time. We're talking about a greeting that interrupts your journey because the person who you're talking to is more important than the task that you've got of getting to your destination. That is the kind of greeting that we're talking about. And it's at this stage where you start saying to me, Guy, this is too much. Jesus' standard of love that he calls us to is crazy. He's calling us to a standard which is perfection. And you would be quite right. In fact, Jesus spells it out in verse 48 where he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In case you hadn't spotted it, Jesus is calling us to be an imitator of our God who is perfect. And our lives and our family likeness should point our enemies to the God who lived the perfect life, the God-man, Jesus, and died the perfect death for them. But remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not giving us new rules. No, rather he's calling us to resemble the family likeness and to grow in our kingdom-shaped life as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is at work in us, and together we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And there won't ever be a point where we suddenly realize that we've reached our goal of perfection here on this earth and that we constantly and consistently love our enemies. No, I think the opposite is going to happen. I think instead, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we'll probably increasingly find the Holy Spirit pointing out areas in our lives where we fall short of the family likeness, where we're failing to love our enemies as Christ loved us when we were his enemies. And so what I'd love you to do uh, as we worship together and we pray and as you go into your lives in this coming week is to prayerfully ask God to highlight to you where you are failing to love your enemies and failing to love your friends, failing to love everyone around you and show you how you can start to love them better in order for them to be pointed towards Jesus who died for them, having lived that perfect life and died that perfect death. Jesus calls us to a kingdom-shaped life that doesn't wait for eternity, but starts now. And as we live this kind of others-shaped life, even our enemies will notice and turn to the King of Kings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us through Jesus, your Son. Thank you for the example that he gives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost, who is at work in us. And Lord, we pray that we'd be working out our salvation with fear and trembling as you point out areas in our lives where we're still failing to love those around us, and in, particularly, in particular, our enemies. Come, Lord Jesus, and transform us. Grow us in holiness. Grow us more like you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.